1: 18 plus.
0: Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to PerpetualChessPod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. And we are here today with a legendary author in the chess world. He is 89 years of of age, best known for being the co-author of the absolutely legendary book. Some consider it possibly to to be the best-selling chess book of all time, Bobby Fischer Teaches Chess. It, of course, was written along with Don Mosenfelder and a certain Bobby Fischer, first published in 1966. This book was my first chess book, as it has been for so many others. And more importantly, it's often cited, again, as the best-selling chess book of all time, well over one million copies sold. Our guest is also a USCF master and an educational psychologist who's written and published a lot about educational technology, and even specifically about the effect of chess on reading scores and other related topics. So I am super excited to welcome to the show Dr. Stuart Margulies. Stuart, how are you? Uh, I'm doing very well. I'm very excited to be talking about chess. Yes, and I'm so excited that you're still 89 years of age, still healthy and able to share your stories and perspective. We should say we're doing this by phone, but you sound good. Hopefully, I sound good for the listeners. I thought this was the best way to do this, and I'm really excited to to hear your perspective, Stuart.
2: Well, uh, I'm hopeful that there'll be things that will come up, uh, that I won't misremember because some of the, like my first connections with Bobby first playing with Bobby is probably, I don't know, uh, 60 years ago or something more than that. Perhaps, uh, he, he was about 15. Uh, I would have been about 25. So that would be 60 years ago that my first, uh, contacts with Bobby were. And, uh, I don't know how well I'll remember, well, what it was like.
0: Well, let's hear it. So what is, when you think of your first encounter of Bobby Fischer, now obviously, as you say, many decades have passed, so it's possible you won't remember the very first encounter, but do you recall either your first time seeing Bobby Fischer or your first time hearing about him, which I'm guessing might have preceded seeing him? Yeah,
2: uh, uh, Alan Kaufman's wife was a fan of his, and uh, Jack Collins... Uh, And Bobby used to go to Jack Collins' house, and that's where I played with him much. And Jack Collins' house was quite near my uncle's house, so I could easily pop over there and get to play with this kid uh, who gave me, even from the beginning, big odds. Uh, And uh, here I was, uh, uh, a reasonable chess master, and I was being easily demolished, uh, even at the odds he gave me. uh, by this kid.
0: And were you guys using a chess clock, Stuart, or what kind of odds did he, how did he get? you, know, you I
2: don't remember if we were using it. It's one of the things I don't remember. We were using a chess clock a lot of the time. I presume that we were playing five-minute chess mostly uh, at that time, uh, but I cannot actually remember uh, if that's what we did. It was quite common around that time just to, to not use clocks but to count you know, we played 10 seconds and people would say, count to themselves, one, two, three, four, five, six, move, one, two, three. You know, they, a lot of chess was played with that 10 second kind of thing, but I think when I played Bobby, I, I played uh, almost always with a, a clock. And it, most of the games that I played with Bobby in the early years were his giving me big odds. And uh, typically, he gave at uh, five minute chess, typically he was giving me, um, uh, pawn and four moves, huh. which was uh, almost inconceivable. Uh, I, you know, after you play the first four moves, you think to yourself, "I could pass now there. I've already got both knights developed and uh, got the center pawns out there." Uh, but uh, what's this kid going to do? But you know, I I certainly got a minus score at uh, being given uh pawn and four.
0: Now, I guess you weren't allowed to bring out your bishop and queen and checkmate him under those circumstances. Uh,
2: No, you weren't allowed to move past the fourth rank, but Aza Hoffman found a way of playing when he was giving four to And Bobby also gave Aza point and four, which was ridiculous because Aza was so much better than me. But Aza found a way of playing which devastated Bobby at point and four. Uh, Aza played. Uh, don't know if it's worth repeating for everybody, but A- Aza played in e3, c3, queen c2, and bishop d3. And for people who are able to visualize that position, you could see that there's just not anything that Black can do. Uh, and I think after Aza found this way of playing, Bobby Stuff giving point and four. Although every time he gave me point and four after that, I never used as... System, I just used, just developed my center pawns and my knights and and played that way. But A's system was devastating.
0: I guess, is black missing their f7 pawn? Is that the issue? Yes,
2: black's missing their f7 pawn, and with the queen at c2 and the bishop at d3, it's just hopeless for black.
0: Uh, What happens? (laughs) Sorry to derail uh, this, but uh, what happens after knight f6? (laughs) uh,
2: Well, after knight f6, he played bishop checkmate. Bishop, check in the next move. Oh, yeah, made. the
0: diagonal's open. Yeah, you sack your bishop. Very funny. Okay. Um, yeah, that was a nice little blindfold puzzle that you gave us, Stuart, um, which I failed. <laughs> but uh, uh-huh. but that that's amazing to hear. So, Fisher, 15 years of age, of course, that's famously the age uh, where he became the youngest grandmaster. So, um, like, what was his degree of fame at that point, Stuart? Uh, like- I don't
2: really know. I don't have any good sense anymore of how famous he was at the time i mean i lived in a little world in which he was famous but i don't know about in the rest of the world uh um just just can't say to 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 a small circle of people he was just spectacular but i don't know how large the circle was
0: right and what was his personality like in those days
2: oh gosh so my memory is so crystal clear what a nice kid he was, and the arguments, the discussions later, I often hear about difficulties with Bobby. I had none of that at all, no no hint whatsoever of any of that. In fact, when we started to do the book and... Uh, Usually, I, I've done a lot of books, and usually authors are just one big pain in the neck because they want to do it this way and that way and the other way. Very intelligent but difficult. But Bobby was very easy, very easy. He only had one or two things he was very insistent on, and except for that, he was just a pleasure. Look at look at the position, and it would be fine with him. Uh, what we were saying was fine with him, but he did have one requirement. And that was, although uh, Don Mosenfelder and Les Alt and I were all chess masters, and we were working on the book, and we were very unlikely, it was a book for beginners, we were very unlikely to be doing something that uh, was an error of any kind. Uh, and yet Bobby insisted that we get two stronger masters than any of the three of us who would proofread every page. Uh, he absolutely wouldn't tolerate any errors. So uh, Raymond Weinstein and Michael Valvo got hired and they went through every page carefully. And of course, nobody ever found anything wrong. Uh, and But Bobby was content.
0: Yeah. There's so many fascinating things about the history of, of your book, Stuart. And one of them to me, and what you just mentioned is, is alluded to, the book has its own Wikipedia page and it is alluded to on that. And, um, to have five people working on a chess book in the early to mid-1960s struck me as unusual. It wasn't big. Uh-huh,
2: unusual puts it mildly,
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, chess wasn't big business at the time. So uh, how, how did this this come about, and was it hard to get the publisher to bring in even additional people, uh, well, as a, you said?
2: Circumstances were, were very unusual, having nothing to do with chess, but programmed instruction that B.F. Skinner had developed was the format we were using in this book. Most people today, in fact, nobody today, would look at the book and recognize. They might say "See, it's a little different than they've ever seen, but they would never recognize that it was done in the format of program instruction that B.F. Skinner had presented. And um, I was a program instruction author and working for Xerox. And um, Xerox uh, found... This was going to be a new way of showing program instruction. You know, Most of the time, the books that I was doing were how the salesman should best present the product in program instruction form. That was the kind of work we were doing. But here was just something completely different, a chess book in program instruction. So, of course, Xerox, for Xerox, the money was no issue at all. They hired Bobby to go on television and play games at Speed Chess and then talk about the book. There was no the money problems were zero so far as Xerox was concerned, but that's how it happened that we got got a great deal of publishing uh, support.
0: Okay, and of course, this is your life's work, Stuart, but for our listeners, could you describe? Uh, could you define program instruction or program it's learning?
2: Awfully hard to do. It's easy if you show some people some of it and look at it for five or 10 minutes. It'll be hard uh, to say if people don't know, but essentially, each step... Oh, you have Everything is broken into many small steps, and nobody ever makes an error in any small step. They uh, are uh, uh, correct all the time, uh, essentially 100% correct. Indeed, when we first did Bobby Fisher teaches chess, uh, the uh, first few pages where we would show people what a checkmate was, when we tested it out on people, and one of the things you do in program instruction is a lot of testing, we tested it out on people. Some of the people found it very hard to go from page one to page two to page three, so we had to put in in-between pages to make it easier, and essentially what was started as page one to two became something like page one to 12, page one to 15, so People could do it uh, and not make any errors. And that's the characteristic of program instruction very small steps, carefully tested on a lot of people, and no errors along the way.
0: Right. And quick feedback, like with the answers given right away, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. Quick feedback with the answers given. We had a lot of trouble because as you uh, as people will have noticed, half the pages are upside down right. because we had to do it so that people couldn't see the answer on the next page. But uh, that's that was all, all of those were uh, unique kind of things because most times people who were writing chess books were doing it with careful notation, you know, point to king four, point to king three. There's no notation in the book, and most of the pictures are just one picture on a page, which was extremely Pandolfini said, "That's how I'm going to do my books now. On one picture at a page is plenty," uh, and um, so it was different in that way. Uh, and uh, of course, whatever it might have been, it, the enthusiasm of chess playing for was so great uh, in the fischer Spassky thing that. Uh, it was no surprise that the book really sold well. In fact, if you didn't, if you didn't have a book, if you had like a television show, like Shelby Lyman's show, had a prodigious audience because so many people were interested in the Fischer-Spassky match. I, I think Shelby said that there was a tennis tournament, a major tennis tournament on at the same time as Shelby's show, and he had more watchers than the tennis players, which they never got, never got before. So uh, interest was really prodigious.
0: But, Stuart, that took a while, right? Your book originally published in 1966. Yeah, and it
2: didn't didn't get well received when it first came out. No, we sold only a few thousand copies uh, a year until... uh, Match, and then then we sold a million copies.
0: So so to paraphrase, twenty thousand
2: copies a day. Uh, we were selling, and twenty thousand copies a day was more than we would, had sold all together in several years.
0: Amazing. So so to paraphrase Rodney Dangerfield, it, it took you guys six years to become an overnight success. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, really what happened. But even even uh, you know even these days, I mean. If you sell ten thousand chess books, even with chess doing quite well in the Queen's Gambit era, that that's a successful book. And again, it's written on Wikipedia, and you just alluded to it. it sounds like around ten thousand books were sold prior to the match, but you felt like that wasn't that significant in terms of sales, or you just didn't really didn't think about it that much.
2: I thought to myself, it's a uh, it's whoever expects a lot a lot of a chess book to sell, especially a book in program instruction format. I had no real great—I mean, it was nice to work with Bobby, uh, who cared about the rest. And uh, uh, somehow to see the, the sales take off was just unbelievable.
0: Yeah, amazing. And of course,
2: the same for right now. You mentioned again the the first time I've seen in the last 50 years anything like Bobby Fischer— and, and like the Fischer-Spassky match is, oh, the Queen's Gambit declined, uh, the Queen's Gambit uh, rather. Uh, that, that has a television audience like like Shelby had, like the book had. I, I don't. That's the only times in my life that I've seen anything like that.
0: Yeah. Luckily, the Queen's Gambit show was not declined. It, it was accepted <laughs> by many. <laughs> um, so. And so, how do you compare these two booms, Stuart? Whenever I have a guest such as the aforementioned Asa Hoffman, who mentions you in the book I discussed with him in a recent interview the last games i mean you, your name comes up periodically, of course, but whenever i ask get a chance to interview people who live through both booms, I'm curious to hear how you compare them, Stuart
2: Well, they seem like a review like the same thing i I don't know i mean you you Go into a coffee shop, you have a cup of coffee, and you listen to people talking in another booth, and they're talking about The Queen's Gambit, just as Shelby Lyman's show had the same kind of thing. Uh, and, and our chess books were, were like that, too. I uh, uh, I just don't know how it happened. I understand that in Capablanca's time, there had been a time when there was a tremendous interest in chess, too. But I didn't
0: live through that. Right. Um, Okay, well, Stuart, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then I want to hear more about the the background of uh, Bobby Fischer Teaches Chess. Perpetual Chess is proud to be brought to you in part by Chessable.com. Chessable, of course, is the premier chess educational website, which allows you to study all aspects of your game using space repetition in order to help you remember opening sequences, tactics, end games, all that stuff. They've got a bunch of fun new courses out, including Arkle's Endings, Grandmaster Keith Arko legendary endgame specialist who's been on the pod. Nice guy as well. They just adapted his book to the Chessable format. You can learn so much from his endgame, how he grinds down masters and even his fellow grandmasters. Chessable also has a free new course available from Mr. Dodgy, reviewing I Am Eric Rosen's Best Stalemate Tricks. Of course, Eric's known for having a lot of fun end game stalemate swindles, so you can check those out for free. So whatever aspect of your game you'd like to work on, be sure to go to chessable.com and check out all their courses available both for free and for purchase.
1: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.
0: And we are back. And Stuart, it, it sounds like, a, again, a multi-year project to even write the book. And then, of course, the book has had a life of its own over the intervening years and now uh, decades. But let's hear a bit more about uh, how the pro- like the the actual writing of the book, because there's been different things reported about Bobby's degree of involvement, so i'm I'd love to hear what you could share about what the actual writing process was like with you and your co-authors and collaborators.
2: Well, Bobby's involvement was modest but but uh, unimportant. But there's one other person who had. Who was involved in it somebody who you interviewed just a few weeks ago and that was frank brady and uh frank the name of bobby fisher teaches chess came from frank brady i'm embarrassed to tell you what the working title was before frank brady came and made the change but the working title was kill with bobby
0: oh wow <laughs>
2: and that would never have sold me. yeah. I mean, We'd be lucky to sell three copies if we kept that title. That shows how little we knew about the the, the world of selling a book until Frank came along and immediately dismissed that. And he suggested uh, Bobby Fisher teaches chess. And in fact, that, that title seems to be kind of catchy because I now know there's Kasparov teaches chess and there's Carlson teaches chess. So Frank Brady's... Uh, Suggestion has has borne a lot of fruit.
0: Yeah. Plus, it's got the iconic photo on the cover of fisher playing on the uh, Dubrovnik chess set. I, I mean, I remember, uh, and I'm sure so many people have stories like this. I, you know, I was um fascinated by chess. Didn't know there was like a tournament world. Didn't know there were books about it. I, from the time I learned when I was six until I was twelve when I got that book, and it just opened up a world to me, and something about the book and the cover and who is Bobby Fisher, uh, it just all drew me in, and I'm sure, again, I'm sure so many have stories like that.
2: Yeah, I, I think it really, um, many people found just, just what they wanted uh, in it, and uh, it, it, Bobby's involvement in it was quite modest, but it was, as he pointed out, The thing he did that was most important is he went along with it. He endorsed it, and he said that's what people really care about, is that it's me who's saying this is okay. And uh, it's the same thing with with Fisher Random Chess Bobby is saying maybe other people have the same idea, but when I say this is something that we should be doing, it has a lot more clout than when somebody... uh, published in some obscure part of the world uh, the same kind of idea. So Bobby Fischer's endorsement was important. Also, he made one uh, change that was, I think, important. There's very little pieces most of the time, like a queen and king versus a king or something. And and under those conditions, it's very, very bare and no problem. But by the time you get to halfway in the book, there are a lot of pieces around. And when we first did it, we set the pieces up so that it would be easy to figure out what you were going to try to do. And Bobby didn't want that. It wasn't that he was trying to make it difficult. He wanted it to look like it would come from a game. He wanted it to look like like the amount of material was balanced. And so he made that change, and that was one of the changes. I think that was the most important of the changes he made in changing the shape of the book, because he wasn't really concerned with uh, how, how many, how fast you went, whether you gave a problem, whether you asked people to solve this, for this position with more practice or less practice. He didn't care about any of those things. He granted us the right to do that. Uh, his only comments were that it would all be accurate and that it would look like a regular game.
0: Okay. Yeah. And of course you guys did pull some of Fisher's positions for the book, which again, since it's a beginner's book is not, I'm sure it wasn't the easiest task, but like, uh, famously you've got, uh, the Fisher Larson checkmate that Fisher actually missed. Um, even though it's a, you know, classic game and he played sparkling chess, he didn't play the fastest checkmate at the end. And that's one of the puzzles, uh, included in the book. So for something like that, was it you and Don digging up the position, or was, was Fisher and no,
2: himself? No, Don, Don did the main work in figuring out how fast we should go, the main programming. Uh, Don is perhaps the, the best of people uh, of, well, I've worked with with that skill. I've worked with a lot of very, 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 very prominent people, but Don is superb. But no, the person who did all of that was Raymond Weinstein. Oh, interesting. And some Mike Valvo. Raymond Weinstein and Mike Valvo worked with Bobby on trying to decide uh, what materials from Bobby's games would be added. And um, Mike Valvo, in, in describing Bobby Fischer teaches chess, said it was like a cast of thousands because uh, uh, he and, and Raymond worked uh, so hard with Bobby to get that to be, to be good. I, I don't know if you know that Raymond's life ended very tragically. Yeah, uh, and uh, we—I didn't have any hint of that.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, it was, it was certainly a, a sad story. He—he um, um, he killed a man um, in the right. early '60s, correct?
2: Yeah, in a halfway house. Yeah, he killed a man. Jeez. Uh it's hard to believe it. I, so easy to be with then but I guess schizophrenics w- often have a real sharp turn at around a certain time in their life and uh, I guess that's what happened with, with Raymond I don't really know the details of how he happened to uh, kill somebody in a halfway house
0: uh, and do you know if he's he, still you know, alive in, in an institution? I don't know if he's still alive okay.
2: but I'd be surprised he was he was younger than me, but was, uh, he was very, very overweight when he was in the halfway house and uh, I just don 't know what his health would have, would be like by now, but i 'd be surprised if okay. uh, he was still
0: alive yeah, just taking a quick look online there 's no mention of of his passing but anyway um, Stuart, i am, I am curious and you you know you mentioned collaborators such as Raymond Weinstein and Mike Valvo, who I believe I actually played once um I'm curious, people like that, obviously this book has generated a lot of royalties over time. Did did they get royalties as well? Or was it no, uh you they and the were co-authors? paid a fee. Okay.
2: The only royalties were Don Mosenfelder, me, and uh Bobby.
0: Okay, yeah, and um obviously And, and-
2: no, Bobby one of the things about Bobby that I have somehow seen in, in papers that I don't feel is correct. But what I would would feel is correct is, despite what so many people have said, to say that my experience with Bobby was he had zip interest in the way of money, and also at the same time he had no interest in how much he was getting or how to maximize it or thing. Despite all that, I think he was quite resentful that other people were making money from his work. So... I don't know how to put the two together. Uh, he certainly wasn't trying to push for more more money. In fact, at one time, we had the opportunity to serialize the book, and uh, the uh, was a major the perhaps the major uh, uh publishing house or newspaper house that would have serialized the book but put a, a position today uh, throughout the whole match. And they were offering very substantial sums, so that Bobby, who earned about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in royalties from Bobby Fisher teaches chess, would have earned about another one hundred and fifty thousand dollars if he had agreed that we could uh, serialize the book through the uh, newspaper through the i 'm not sure what this, wasn't i don't think it was Hearst but one of those major uh Uh, newspaper chains uh and yet he he turned it down and he also said he wanted to popularize chess and this was going to popular this would have increased the number of readers by 100 percent if we could have uh, uh given the newspapers the right to put one position a day in every day uh and the I never understood why he turned it down. And we could never talk to him about it because this was in the middle of the match or in the first stages of the match and everybody agreed. We didn't want to have any discussion with Bobby about any financial issues where he disagreed or not. We didn't want to do anything to distress the match. But I thought if I could talk to him for five minutes, uh, he would probably say, I'd love to do it. And who knows what he was told was involved in. He, He doesn't have much knowledge about a lot of things or didn't at that time. So I doubt he really understood what was involved. And as I say, it would have doubled his royalties and increased the number of people who would uh know his name, see his work. But he said no and we didn't follow up on it.
0: Wow. Yeah, that must have been disappointing for you personally as well.
2: Yeah, it was was seventy five thousand dollar check for me, yeah. Uh was was disappointing and I would have liked to have more <laughs> more publicity for it too. And also I felt we're getting a no from somebody who if I could talk to for a minute would change to a yes. All of that made it disappointing.
0: Yeah, that whole period sounds like such a maelstrom the with that match going on and obviously this is yeah, pre well, pre cell phone age. You can't just text Bobby, you know, you've got to try to get him on the phone halfway across the world when
2: We, we had his lawyer but we we did not feel that we could go through to his lawyer. Just we we didn't have a good relationship with his lawyer. Nothing bad, but nothing friendly either.
0: Right. And how did your relationship with, with Fisher evolve over the years? Did you ever see him after he became world champion?
2: No. Never saw him after... I mean, I saw him, of course, in the streets and waved to him and things like that. But no, I never had another minute. I never played another game with him. I played so many games with him before uh, he became world champion, but I never played, you know, i, I say I played many games with him. I, probably I played something like 60 games where he gave me uh, not just one and four. The other times we played, he gave me 10 to one or we played regular. He give me 10 to one and draw odds. And I, uh, we played and played and played and played, and I finally won one game once the whole time. It was worth, worth a lot to me to finally win a game. Uh, and uh, my sense is, despite what people said uh, about how he hated to lose, my sense is he was rooting for me. I huh. thought he was really pleased that I finally won a game.
0: Do, do you have a record of the game, Stuart?
2: No, I don't.
0: <laughs> I would be writing it down as fast as I could. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you what
2: the opening was. I don't know if you know the name that we were using then. It was called the Kevitz Defense. Uh, but uh, I, I played that and, and got a good, very good game. And Bobby said to Kevitz about a week later, he said, you know, I'd like to study... Uh, your work. a uh, uh, steward plays it against me and he kills me with it. Well, everybody was astonished to think of me killing with it. What he means is I won one game in 60.
0: <laughs> right, that's funny. And Kevin, can you spell that? I'm I am not familiar with that opening.
2: Alexander Kevitz, K-E-V-I-T-Z.
0: Oh, okay. I'll,
2: I'll have the to... The same opening has now got a new name. They call it the Two Knights Tango now.
0: Ah, okay. That that would explain, yeah, the Black Knights Tango, I guess. That, that would explain... Uh, my lack of familiarity. And uh Stuart, if you don't mind my asking, um, are are you Jewish? Yes. Okay. I I guessed as much, but of course with Fisher's uh, you know, unfortunate, um, famed anti-Semitism, especially later in life, did, did you experience any anti-Semitism from Fisher? Oh no. No,
2: not the Fisher I knew wasn't like that at all.
0: So were there any signs, of course we, we discussed uh Weinstein's um uh, mental health issues were there any signs of any sort of uh, imbalance in your encounters with Fisher
2: zero wow one time he made a a a hostile comment a hostile racial comment that in, in many 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 years of of knowing him that was the only thing and and even then you know when i looked up at the thing he just sort of brushed it aside as if what did i what did i ever say that for or something no none of it, None at all uh, uh, of any of that. In fact, in the Marshall Chess Club at the time, we had no black players. And that was in part because various people who were prominent in the club did not want any black players. And finally, several people pushing very hard, like uh, Frank Brady among them, and Jimmy Sherwin and Alan Kaufman, pushing really hard, we got our first uh black member in the club and uh uh i don't know if you uh ever heard of uh, uh any of those uh things if i in fact i wonder if i could remember his name but at, at any rate uh his name was archie waters I'm, you probably have never heard of him but uh you ask about fisher and his uh Anti-Semitism and his uh, being a member of or connected with the Aryan Nation. So here's Archie Waters, a black guy in the club, and Fisher and Archie Waters get to be really good friends. Uh, I don't know who else was a who else hung out with Archie Waters more than Bobby because they used to hang out to play ping pong together. So um, it's asking about. Fisher and me and Jewish—you could even ask more strongly about Fisher and Archie Waters, who who just hung out well.
0: Yeah, and uh, John Donaldson has written that Fisher loved to sing soul music songs. Um, did you, did you witness that as well?
2: No, no, I didn't. Um, and you know, but as I say, as you move along to when Fisher becomes world champion and changes his life and so on, I'm now no longer in Fisher's life. I don't really know hardly anything. I mean, I don't have any personal contacts uh, except with the young Fisher.
0: Right. And Asa tells some great stories both in his book and in our interview of uh, he, Fisher, and chess players kind of like, just kind of like prowling the streets. You know, you, you meet at a yeah, chess club. Yeah, prowling the
2: streets to eat. Yeah.
0: Were, were you involved in any of those? Uh... Yeah, a little
2: bit. He, had, he liked these delis and somehow he might prowl the streets and go to the delis.
0: And but it it was early enough where it wasn't creating a uh, a stir yet. Fisher wasn't that famous in, in those days.
2: I don't have that good a memory of any stir when we went down the streets to go eat in the early years. I just don't have any any memory at all uh, mm-hmm. and, of it. And, and a lot of the time when I was doing and seeing Fisher at uh, Jack Collins' house. So uh, we wouldn't be going out to... But every once in a while, we did, did go out. Uh I'm not sure. I mean, there were various guys who were friends of Bobby, uh, some of whom you, you may have interviewed, like Earl Hall or uh, Jimmy Gore or any of those people, or, or uh, Zuckerman, of course. Uh, but uh, I, those were the people who would go along with him to, to uh, and of course, Frank Brady, too, would go along, but uh, I, I didn't know that world very well.
0: Okay, and you write in the book that, um, it's written in the foreword that that you and Mr. Mosenfelder, you guys kind of conceived the book before Fisher was on board, you were looking for a strong player to, uh, to endorse it and be involved, so how did Fisher's actual involvement come about, Stuart?
2: I don't know. One day it happened. I don't (laughs) really know how it happened. And and we had no trouble either. We had no trouble with this lawyer, with writing the contract, with any of it. Uh, And and the contract gave us the right to uh, uh, have have it go in the newspaper. and, And we had this... As I say, the money would have been very substantial, and the publicity would have been very substantial, and our lawyers assured us that we had the right to do it. We didn't need to ask Bobby. But everybody had the same feeling. That's all we need is to do something that's going to aggravate Bobby when he's playing Spassky. We better forget it.
0: Huh. Um, so did you ever, like you, you've mentioned his involvement was minimal um, but once you had his endorsement, did you ever like have get-togethers to go over the materials in the book, or was it all done through intermediaries?
2: I don't think the only people that got involved with him with the book, I think, were Raymond and Mike Valvo. Uh, I don't think uh, Don Mosenfelder, or, or, or maybe Don had some, but I didn't have any more involvement with him in the book there there was a book in front of us he was looking at it had no complaints went through all the pages no i mean there wasn't anything to be said that i know of except the time that he said he wanted it to be um more like it could have come from an actual game
0: (coughs) okay yeah and and you mentioned uh when we chatted briefly last week that the the most up-to-date figure you're aware of is over 1.25 million copies sold
2: yeah about well i'm not really sure but that's about right
0: that's amazing congratulations
2: you know one other problem we had in the book that n- nobody has ever had with a book before i'll bet is uh a little later after bobby was world champion and we wanted uh, you know the was coming out and he, he was getting his royalty checks. the royalty checks would come back saying no one at this address with that name and we, he was sort of hidden it was hard to send him a royalty check
0: wow
2: uh, but finally we got somebody who, who could always tell us where he was and through her uh we could send him the checks.
0: And those were the days when he was most likely needed the money most, right? Living like a pauper. I don't know. And...
2: I, it's funny. The money thing then was really quite obscure to me. Uh, Don and I both considered, or at least certainly I remember I did, uh, uh, making arrangements where he would get our royalties, but we, we didn't know what financially was happening. Uh, anyway, we, we have kind of lost all that. We, we certainly... Intended to get him uh, his royalty checks. Not that I I I wasn't the one who was concerned with it, but the people at Xerox couldn't find them to send them. Uh, it was sure nas Kennedy, right. who who could tell us where to where to send the checks, we were very grateful that she would uh, trust us with uh, Bobby's address. But I guess under the circumstances, it was an easy decision for her.
0: Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And was it in California? What, uh, if you could? If I you... don't
2: know who. Uh, I don't. I don't remember what address. Uh, I mean, I remember she gave me the address, and I remember giving it to the Xerox people, but I don't remember anything about what the address was.
0: Okay. Yeah. Just um, amazing. I mean, of course, if you read uh, Dr. Brady or John Donaldson's uh, works about Fisher, which are Well worth reading. I mean, so many. It seems like so many people tried to help him. You know, when they were able to, especially financially. There's, you know, he could have done so little to be comfortable, but just, just couldn't, just couldn't or wouldn't.
2: Well, there was a time that the um, people from the Worldwide Church of God came to see us. They wanted. Bobby to write a a, a series uh, on the middle game, and, and uh, that would have kept Bobby busy and would have yielded a lot of money. But I don't know why nothing ever came of it. Uh,
0: did they want Bobby originally- to write it, or did they want you guys to write it and put Bobby's name on it? Uh- uh, well,
2: uh, I wouldn't phrase it that way. Uh, that we would write it and put Bobby's name on it. We would write it with Bobby if we were going to write it. But neither of us had any interest in writing another book with Bobby. Not that we had any trouble with the first, but our life had gone different directions.
0: Yeah, and I and I would like to hear more about your research uh, shortly. But Stuart, just to to wrap up the the endlessly fascinating topic of Fisher and and this book in particular. Um, So what is your your most cherished Fisher memory? I mean, as someone who got to play him so many times, is it beating him, or is there another one that stands out?
2: Well, I'm embarrassed to say this, but uh, the thing that you said is what is my most cherished memory. (laughs) Of course.
0: You shouldn't be. That that would definitely be mine uh, as well. Um,
2: But, you know, also, I won a lot of games against Bobby. For example, sometimes we would... After he gave me pawn and four, we'd get into rook and pawn endings where I might have king, rook, and five pawns against king, rook, and two, and I might win those games, too, and uh, that would please me a great deal, too. Uh, Most of the time, if I would get into, say, king, rook, and four, with me having uh, king, rook, and four and Bobby having king, rook, and three, I could just resign. I I couldn't hold it. A king, rook, and pawn ending, a a pawn ahead, would be hopeless for me to try to to win uh, try to even draw uh i mean bobby somehow nobody seems to make such a fuss about how terribly difficult it was to play king rook and poor minions with him
0: huh yeah he, he was amazing at uh, all phases of the game well Stuart, we're going to take one more break and then i've got a few listener questions for uh for you related to your research I've been digging deeper, looking at my analytics on aimchess.com, specifically trying to improve my time management at Blitz Chess, as you guys have heard me discuss before. They have this tab called Long Thinking, where you can look to see what the outcome of moves where you spend a lot of time is. And for me, it turns out those moves tend to be better than average compared to my rating peers. So my issue is I just need to play a little bit faster every single move. It's not so much about avoiding the long things. And there's tons of insights you can get like that from aimchest.com. You can check it out for free. Explore all phases of your game with actionable drills that you can then review and download games where issues arise. Uh, so, check it out for free. And if you subscribe, use the promo code perpetual30 on aimchest.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then,
1: Judy discovered jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs>
0: And we are back. And, Stuart, we have a question from a supporter of the podcast. Uh, Those who support the podcast via Patreon or PayPal can find out the guests and submit questions for them in advance. And this one is from Thanush Thambin, who says... Fisher Teaches Chess was my first chess book. I had no chess knowledge prior to that that except how pieces move. I was wondering what distinguishes the way the book was presented that helps so many newbies get better with zero instructions or words. Can this method be taken into other areas of chess development? Of course, there are words in there, but I think he's mainly referring to uh, no chess notation.
2: Well, I think a lot of people have have since decided that they could get along without chess notation and they could get along with one big picture on a page. Uh, and so I think that's, that's going to now be, or that is now fairly uh, commonly seen. And the idea of doing it with the uh, BF Skinner approach, which hardly anybody would notice or talk about, uh, is also very appealing to me. But I don't think that, that will take off because uh, Bf Skinner's work is not so well known, and it isn't so clear what you have to do in chess to make to make it such that everybody could go from page one to page two to page three without any difficulty. So that is a method which is used in many other places besides chess, and I think it could be used in the, if people write about the chess middle game and the chess end game. I would think that that would be a, a a very appropriate tool for them to use, but I don't know if that will happen because it's it's not so well known,
0: okay, yeah, and we had a another uh, listener question this one's from uh tyron ross price and and he asks,, uh, what have you learned about the learning process that would improve Bobby Fisher teaches chess, and have you considered making a chessable course, which I can tell you about chessable if if need be, Stuart.
2: You know, I I don't know enough about chessable courses to know about
0: yeah. Well, so what I was going to say, yeah, what I can tell you um, is it's it's based on space repetition, basically. So, um, you know, to me, it actually, you know, this is not my field of expertise, um, but. Program learning sounded like a sort of distant cousin because there is a lot of testing involved with spaced repetition to make sure that you're retaining the material that you learn. So Chessable is kind of, um, you know, it's a uh, chess startup that's cropped up in the past five years, and they've really um, advanced the field of chess learning by frequently, especially with opening sequences and tactical patterns. Uh, they help you learn a lot, but I'm guessing that you're, you're retired uh, from, from books, courses. But I like and, to
2: learn about it. It sounds quite compelling.
0: Oh yeah. Well, we can talk more about it when we're not recording. I should obviously regular listeners know they're a sponsor of the podcast. So i um, not, I'm not trying to derail this into an infomercial, but I am a legitimate fan of it. Um, but basically, Uh, To answer the rest of uh, Tyron's question, it sounds like you're not working on any new chess material currently.
2: No, we're not working on any new chess material uh, currently. Sorry, go ahead. Well, one thing that we were interested in for a while, but it's very obscure, is what is the beauty in chess? And many people have said that they find just some chess moves beautiful, or even many chess moves beautiful, or even all of chess beautiful. And so, one thing we were doing was research into what makes a move beautiful. And it, it takes a long time to say uh, uh, what what we've discovered. But uh, we now think that once we have some idea of what makes chess beautiful, that the very rules of chess developed over hundreds of years were in part influenced by a desire to keep, keep chess being an activity that had a lot of beauty in it, and uh, if we were going to work on something else, we would certainly work on trying to understand that better.
0: Yeah, I don't know if you've uh come across uh, Grandmaster Jonathan Levitt's book Secrets of Spectacular Chess, but he kind of opines about that question some, it's definitely worth checking. It's a great book, first of yeah, all. Yeah, I'd
2: like to read that then. Jonathan Levitt. Yeah, Levitt's book. Yeah, definitely. That would be definitely interesting.
0: Yeah, but it is it's it's a fascinating, you know, general topic how chess just endures, how, you know, invented so many centuries ago and more popular than ever today. Do you do you have any broader theories about what, what makes the no, game so compelling? No, I, I don't.
2: I mean, I do think that, elements of, that uh, elements of beauty are just infused in chess. And indeed, one of the concerns I've always had is that whether random chess, which solves the problem of uh, having people get all prepared and having computer preparation, but whether the rules of uh, random chess allow for as much beauty uh, in a chess game as the current rules or whether one could change random chess so that you could get more beauty into it but those would be complicated questions to solve
0: yeah i i wonder about that as well i i am skeptical i have to say that it, that it can hold up although i do understand that especially at the professional level um the the opening memorization can can be overwhelming and uh, Stuart, I'd also like to to talk about your research a little bit. Um, of course, you've you've written about the effects of chess on reading scores. Could I, I read the paper that I could find online? But I know you've, I believe, you've written more than one paper. Could you summarize both your research and how how you would update it, or what has changed uh, in the many years since that's been written?
2: Well, one problem for me has been. When people do research studies in schools, they usually try to complete the study within a semester or two semesters. And a lot of the time has to be spent, if you're dealing with kids who are 9 and 10 and 11, with teaching them the rules. And there's only so many hours that they play in during the rest of the semester. So when you're talking about whether playing chess helps you to learn to read you're usually talking about a very small amount of playing chess because they might play an hour or two a week after they've had 10 weeks or so of getting really familiar with how to play. So it's very hard to get a good result. I, I did do one study where it showed that people who had learned to play chess were doing, showing a bigger gain in reading score than people who hadn't learned to play chess but when I did the study over again, I didn't get the same result. And it seems really not replicable and not easily replicable. So my present thinking is that chess is somewhat helpful, but very little helpful. Just barely. It's uncertain whether you get in one semester of playing chess, whether you get any gain at all in ability to do well in reading or math. I just plain no. I don't think anybody would know. But one thing we did learn is that if you had a chess club, the people who came to the chess club were you know, voluntary, come anybody, no, no pressures of any kind. But the people who chose to come and to play turned out to be the best students in the school, it turned out to have the highest scores in reading in the school. And nobody said, oh, that shows that if you play chess, you get to be very good in school. Everybody said, well, people who are very smart uh, and very good readers come and like to play chess, but it isn't chess that did it. But of course, some people might think chess is of some help in that. It's, it's really just quite unknown at the moment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, all of us chess teachers, you know, we, we believe that chess... I mean first we hope it's helpful but uh, uh bro- more broadly I think at least it can't be bad but I know that uh you know these studies they remind me a bit of uh nutrition studies where like the science changes over the years and just when you think one thing is true another thing is discovered and it can be very hard to isolate variables um but I mean to me it's it's admirable that that you did attempt to replicate the study and that you're forthcoming about the fact that you, you didn't have the same results the second time around.
2: Well, one thing that did happen is the uh, principals of the Bronx schools where we were doing the study, uh, at the beginning, when we first came there, were quite negative on allowing kids to play chess in the classroom because they said, you know, we... We want kids to gain in reading and math. How well we're evaluated as principals depend on how well our kids do. We just can't have them wasting a lot of time messing around playing chess. But the principals gave up that criticism um, when they saw that it might help and it might not, but it wasn't hurting. And uh, so what you just said now, I think, is how the principals would generally feel. Okay, if you want to mess around playing chess... It's okay with me because it's not going to be harmful. And, and indeed, even in some countries, or at least in one country, uh, I think it was Armenia, they decided that all the kids could learn to be
0: helpful. Yeah, and of course, Armenia has turned out some amazing chess players as a result. And uh, yeah, Tatyav Abrahamian, uh, Armenian-turned-American chess champion, has talked about learning chess uh, in um in schools there, and obviously uh, another converted American, Levonaronian, did did quite okay um, with his uh, chess. Um, now, Stuart, another sort of related question is, in, in Asa's book, he he also mentions that you, you played some other games. Like, of course, Asa famously plays many games, um, and, but he mentions you playing Scrabble. Are you an avid Scrabble player as well?
2: Yeah, I did play a lot of Scrabble, and Um, When I grew up, people who played chess did not play so much in the Marshall or Manhattan or Log Cabin or any of the other chess clubs. People who played chess when I grew up played in the Flea House, 42nd Street Chess Club. I'm sure a lot of people who, if you've interviewed a lot of people who are older, they said that was the, that was where they played chess when they they grew up. It would be Dozens of You could go in in an afternoon on a Saturday, and there'd be dozens of chess games going on there. But if you went to the Marshall Chess Club, you might have three or four games at best. So the Times Square Chess Club is where people went to play chess and to play Scrabble. Uh, There was a lot of Scrabble play there. So if you went up there to to play chess regularly, you'd be bound to uh, have learned to play uh, Scrabble.
0: Okay, and did you take your Scrabble seriously?
2: No, not. I wasn't all that good at it. I played for a little bit. My wife loves to, loves to play, so I, I play with her. But, I mean, I, I do like the game uh, uh, of Scrabble very much. And uh, and the flea house, flea, and certainly the reason they call it the flea house, today I think if you ask somebody, why is it called the Flea House? They'd say it's kind of a disreputable, or was kind of a disreputable place, like a flea house. But that isn't why it got the name of the Flea House. Uh, long ago, about, oh fifty 50 or 60 years ago, on the corner of 42nd Street and 8th Avenue, where you'd get out of the subway to go to the chess club, there was Hector's Flea Circus. And so, uh, you'd essentially, you'd go to the... To Hector's Circus and then wind up playing chess. I mean, you get off at Hector's Circus and play chess. Uh, hence, it became the chess became the flea house, um, and and, who, and the place where people played.
0: Yeah, and Asa, of course, in his book, describes so many legendary uh, New York figures. Uh, you know, Russellimo. Did you did you ever play Rosalimo? Oh,
2: I played a lot with Russellimo. Yes, yeah, he was one of my favorite players, and I even played. Judith Polgar, a 10-year-old Judith Polgar in Russell Limo's club when I was young.
0: Wow, amazing. How'd that game go?
2: <laughs> uh, it was a draw.
0: Oh, great. Yeah. You, I'm, you, <laughs> I'm got, very you,
2: pleased with it. I, got, <laughs> I often tell people, yeah, I played that uh, Judith Polgar. Yeah, we drew. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't say that it that was a 10, and she was 10 and a half. I wouldn't have had a chance.
0: Yeah, you you got her just in time. <laughs> you, yeah. you, you wait six more months, and it's all over.
2: <laughs> That's what it would have been, yeah. yeah. Nicky Rosalino was, of course, a wonderful person to, to have there.
0: Yeah, and so he has, as, and again... also the
2: one who played beautiful, John. I think. I mean, he really cared about beauty and just mm-hmm, glorious, anyway.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'd love to, love to hear more stories. Did you visit, he had a, a chess venue, I don't know what, what to call it. Did you visit his store, his chess store?
2: Uh, have you ever had a glass of water? Have you ever had <laughs> a hamburger? Uh, yeah, of course I did.
0: So that was but, another uh, place to play.
2: Yeah, I, I would say that it competed with the Flea House because the Flea House had a very strong player who played there all the time, was always available, came there every afternoon, made his living at it. You know, a lot of people have made their living in Chester's playing for small stakes, but the Flea House had uh, <laughs> one player. You may not know him. His name was Abe Turner, but he was a very strong player, and he was there every day. But uh, Nicky's Place had Nicky, so right. you could play with Nicky. So uh, those are the two places that were most, most desirable, but Nicky's Place came much later.
0: Okay, this is Nikki Rosalimo, of course. And, yeah. and so in these encounters, would you, as a matter of course, play them for, for money, Stuart?
2: Yes, as a matter of course, I would play for money, yeah. Okay, and were you I, expecting,
0: I, was... I mean, were you expecting to hold your own, or were you just kind of oh. like,
2: <laughs>
0: <Gosh>. <laughs> I mean, I no, obviously, in the case of someone like Rosalimo, he could give odds, but the, the point is, you weren't, you were okay with losing a bit of money. Um. I'll of course, okay. of
2: course. Are you kidding? It's, it was so little to lose and to, and to play Nikki. yeah. Oh, yeah. Play Nicky and play Abe Turner, too, yeah. Sure, It's great. It's amazing to me that I could get along just losing so little money. You know, you have all these people who make a living, or not all these, but some people who make a living playing chess for small stakes, make a living at money, professional chess players. But there's also a stack of us who... Uh, enjoy our lives regularly losing to these people. Right, You'd have to have a lot of us to, for a few of them. So yeah,
0: it was great. Well, it's good that you have that attitude and in in your aforementioned study, you mentioned one of the people that you thank for your help with the project is a young Maurice Ashley. Um, to, so how, how well have you known Maurice over the years?
2: Not at all. I mean, I played with him Sometimes, but that's all i really don't have very little connection with him
0: okay uh, and in terms of like legendary new york city chess figures stewart is there is there anyone that you feel like we haven't mentioned that that we should have
2: oh well, not, not a, a legendary chess figure maybe but uh i have to think of his name they call him the fox uh because of his uh involvement with the lindbergh kidnapping name will come to mind in a bit uh uh anyway uh I, I was, it was always interesting to me to to play him uh and uh there were quite all the players who had come around sometime uh so always exciting to me to play one of these people who who knew everybody from the old days uh uh, I'm not sure how well I remember their names without thinking about it. Kupchik was one of them. I don't know if you've ever heard that name. Uh, but these were people who were much older than me. I mean, I was a young kid, and and they knew. I mean, they played with Emmanuel Lasker and that group. They they were really exciting to, to talk to. And even a younger player, you know, the, the guy who plays... On the street corner or played on the street corner in New Orleans for all those years. Jude Acer's. Yeah, Jude Acer. Talking to Jude Acer was terribly exciting for me because Jude knew knew uh, everywhere that Paul Murphy had played. He could take me to the house where he was born, to where he played. He could tell me the names of people he played with and what they did. So I was very taken by by connections with guys like that who knew knew some of the older
0: players yeah dude aces
2: is one of those places amazing to me that he made us living all those years on that little corner in new orleans
0: yeah i've got a i've never met him in person just exchanged a few emails shout out to drew if you're if you're listening i'd uh lo- love to get to play him sometime um and Stuart, just uh to, to Tie it up. Um, how how did you get into chess to begin with? What was uh, what was your my entry into the game? My
2: uncle taught me to play one day, and uh, then it turned out that uh, a second uncle of mine was Irving Shernoff, a distant relative, oh, wow. and my uncle got me got Irving to come in and play with me and give me his book. That was very exciting, and somehow or other, then I started to play.
0: I mean, Irving must have been an absolute walking chess encyclopedia. I mean, his his enthusiasm for chess is obviously it's so evident in his books.
2: Well, I wish I had more connection with him, but I didn't. Just He came to the house once, and he gave me uh, queen odds, and I, uh, he got four moves, and I think it's amazing. It was the first time I've thought of this in 60 years uh, is to think of the time I met him and how he played. Uh, it's really quite, quite distant. Okay. And, and other places, too. There was the Rice Progressive Chess Club. Probably nobody that you've ever interviewed has ever been to the Rice Progressive Chess Club. Uh, probably closed 60 years ago. But it was an exciting place. It had been taken over by cards because the guy who ran it, who crushed me whenever we played, he was so strong. A uh, chess player uh, had become a, a, a card player and made a very good living playing Spanish Pinochle with local people for high stakes.
0: <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so much uh, game history in in New York City. Um, and how old were you, Stuart, when you learned to play chess?
2: Uh, I was 12, maybe, when I first started, found the Rice Progressive, or 13 or 14 when I found the Rice Progressive Chess Club. It was strange, strange. There's, there was no chess in the Rice Progressive Chess Club. There was The bottom floor had chess pieces, old chess pieces, and... Um, then you have to go up the stairs, which you weren't welcome to do, where they were playing cards for very high stakes. And they kept the, the tables down at the bottom floor for chess in case the police came to raid. If the police wanted to raid. They'd have to go through the chess club and then walk up these spider stairs, which was very hard to walk up uh, to, to deal with the people who were playing for really high stake money regularly. And uh, so this was this place that he had just these chests. And every once in a while, the guy whose name I'd have to remember would come down. He he was maybe fourth or fifth best player in the country in his time. Uh, extremely strong. Uh, and he would come down and maybe once a month he would drag himself down and play a few games of his old love chess, which he'd given up for. Playing high stake, uh, high
0: stake uh, and he just crushed me. So and you'd be down of, there waiting, or there'd be other, other people, people
2: playing. Came too. I okay. mean, some of my friends came down to to see him, and and well, and they were good players, Elliot Hurst and Jimmy Sherwin. Yeah, all those players, they were got crushed by him too.
0: Wow, amazing stories. And what about uh, like I'm just thinking aloud of sort of New York chess figures like Fred Reinfeld or Al Horowitz. Did you intersect with them at all?
2: Al Horowitz, plenty, but Fred Reinfeld, never.
0: Okay, uh, And Al
2: Horowitz gave me very big odds in chess, but he was unable t- to win at the big odds he gave me. He uh, lost almost every game. And uh, Bobby said, you know, the strong player should know not to give more odds than he they can. They're supposed to know... All that, but he said he's just too ego involved to won't, he won't play with it. At any anyway, that's what I remember about Al Ha. Uh, uh, other than that, he was just—I uh, mean, not include, including that—he was just a fine person to play with. The way, way, way stronger than me. Mm-hmm. Very good player.
0: And of course, he also sold a lot of chess books. You know, when to to bring it back to to Bobby Fischer teaches chess. When when you were writing this book. Um, was your vision behind it primarily to, to share your knowledge of chess, to utilize program learning? Like, what what drove you the to...
2: Utilize program learning was my main interest. I especially would have liked to teach my girlfriend to play a little bit, and, and it, she was the one who made us expand the number of pages enormously, because although she's very smart, she just couldn't... Do a checkmate. Couldn't tell when it was checkmate or not. Needed practice and practice and practice and practice, and had to put in: is there any place for the king to escape? Is there any piece that can intervene? You know, had to put in all of that sort of stuff, pages of it, in order for her to do it. But I, I was interested in just using Skinner's work as a, you know, as a as a tool. I was working with doing Skinner's work. That program instruction work and other things when, try to apply it to chess.
0: Well, I can't imagine how many people have learned chess. Well, I guess I can. Could be 1.25 million.
2: Of uh, oh yeah, <laughs> oh I, I suspect yeah. I mean, a lot of if you sell a million books, so uh, a lot of people, like one person gets the book and three read it.
0: Yeah, well, uh, I've only bought three of them, Stuart. I can only account for three of them. One when I was a kid, one in the past couple of years, and then <sighs> there was a time when I was uh, donating chess books to a jail and purchasing new books, and I reached out to the guy who gave the books to the prisoners, Troy, and he specifically requested your book because of its lack of notation because he was saying there are, there are people in jail who love chess and want to learn chess but can't read, so it's the, the perfect book well, for Wow,
2: that, that's really nice to to hear that there are people who who liked it uh, under those circumstances. Uh, that's that's uh, very very pleasing to hear. Uh,
0: yeah. Well, and and again, thank thank you for for this book, Stuart. The, this has been amazing. Before before we let you go, is is there anything else you'd you'd like to discuss? Whether it be related to your your research or stories that you you haven't yet had the chance to tell.
2: No, well, one thing I think is that there's something, uh, there's, there's another aspect of chess that nobody ever mentions that I have seen become very important to people, and that is I had a friend, about a 2100 player, who had very serious surgery and was in a great deal of pain. And he said that reading chess magazines, reading chess books, allowed him to somehow turn his attention when he needed to away from his physical pain and just to get deeply absorbed in chess. And since then, I've met quite a few people who have found that they need to distract themselves if they want to turn away, if they want to do something that they'll care about, when things are really bothering them, that chess is a solution to to that problem, and uh, um, I've just been impressed that people can, even under the very difficult of circumstances, if they need to do something that they'll care about and will turn their attention away from their troubles, chess succeeds in doing it. I don't know if other things do that.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I certainly there have been times in my life where you just get enveloped in it, and yeah, sometimes when when something else is, else is bothering you, it can be a, a great escape. Um, that that's well said. And um, I, I thought of another question for you, Stewart. Just out of curiosity, do you do you follow top level chess, and is that something you've kept up with over the years? Um,
2: you know, I for this program I called four of my friends that I played chess with in college, so they are all my age, and I asked them all, do you have any involvement in chess at 90? Uh, and three of the four play online every once in a while. They continue at 90 to continue to play online. And, and all of them have read the magazines or read newspapers or something. and have, They all know What big tournaments are on? They all know. They all know Carlson's name, even though a lot of years have passed since they played. uh, They they still have some involvement. Still, still some love of it that stays all their lives. That's amazing. Me too.
0: I'm in the same boat. That's amazing. And uh, yeah, so it's. I don't know if it's that or something else, but it's it's awesome that you guys all are are still around, uh, still in such good health.
2: There used to be a time when people said you could ward off Alzheimer's with chess, Right. But I tried to see if there was any truth in it, and I found that I couldn't get enough information to know if it's true.
0: Yeah, that's another one where... it's, I don't consider the science entirely settled, but it can't be bad. <laughs> um, but yep, I know uh, Beatrice Marinello is doing a lot of work, uh, Checkmate Dementia, um, to, to help promote chess to, uh, to older people.
2: Okay, wow. Well, yeah, I didn't know that people had been doing some work. And yeah, I, I, it's pretty hard to, to get some research that you could trust in this field.
0: Yeah, uh, unfortunately, but, but again, I mean, obviously using your mind, uh, constructively and, uh, and just the anecdote you told or anecdata, I guess you could say, um, (laughs) is, is a small check in the, uh, in the, the collab of, uh, helping, um, chess, helping, uh, maintain mental fitness. Um, well, Stuart, this, this has been fantastic. Last question. Do you have any general sort of non-chess advice for maintaining one's health to the age of uh, 89 and counting? I
2: can't say that I know much uh, about what, what would work.
0: It's really impressive uh, how well you remember all these stories and how sharp you, you still are in conversation.
2: Well, I hope I remember all all the stories as they actually happened, and not as I've distorted them over the years. But it, <laughs> it does seem like that, isn't what, I mean, I do feel like some of it was so impactful on me that it, it I still remember a lot.
0: Are you like um, a healthy eater? <laughs> do you drink? Do you exercise? Let Let's get a few more nuggets.
2: <laughs> uh, well, I go three times a week to the gym where I work with a physical therapist. And the, but it's kind of very mild work. I don't know that people would be impressed by how mild my exercise regime is. Um, but I do it.
0: And are you doing? You reading a lot? Doing any chess puzzles? What about? Yeah, mental? I
2: do do read a, a lot. Uh, and, and one thing I read a lot of read a lot of is um, new in chess. But I have a rule in rule in new and chest. I don't know if anybody else would ever have this rule. But I have a rule in, in new and chest. When I'm feeling, I, I sometimes have acid stomach, uh, a difficulty that can really distract me. And the rule I have is when new and Chess comes in, I leave it in its wrapping. And if I'm suddenly bothered by some, then I come inside, I take some tums, and I open up New in Chess and, and let myself just sink into it.
0: That's great. Yeah, it it is a fantastic way to keep up with the chess news. Always great pictures and uh, great great game analysis. Um, and do you have... I, I keep saying it's my last question, but I keep thinking of one more. Do you have a favorite chess book uh, that, that helped you along the way, Stuart? I, I've read
2: really... Very, 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 very little in the way of chess books. Uh, I don't know why I, uh, I didn't try to enhance my chess much. Uh, and and uh, the, by far, the books I've liked the most have been the Suzanko books.
0: Yeah. But
2: they, aren't, they don't teach you so much to play chess as they're just glorious books, I think.
0: You've got good taste, Stuart. Yeah, Grandmaster Jenna Sasanko has some great sort of uh, chess history and memoirs and just stories of his interactions with uh, with so many legends, especially uh, Soviet uh, legends.
2: Yeah, and he's such a person. He's yeah. so appealing a person.
0: Yeah. Uh,
2: anyway, that's my, my favorite of the in the chess world, I think.
0: So to get There's, to... The
2: chess books that I read.
0: So, to get to your other books what other books are you a fiction reader nonfiction?
2: uh well, I certainly liked all the chess fiction I certainly loved all the chess fiction uh there's uh one chess fiction that nobody seems to have ever heard of uh i mean uh, the the standard work uh, uh nabokov of course and and uh Gosh, names won't come to mind for a minute, but you know all the standard ones yeah. are just really first-rate. But there's also one that nobody has ever heard of that I thought was just great, and it was called The Change of Air, and it was written by Ivan Gold, and it said takes place in the chess club on 14th Street. I don't know why it never got to be more popular. It won the O. Henry Short Story Award for the year, and I never see it in any chess uh, publications. Um, but anyway, that's another one of those. Uh, okay. I, I think if there's anything about chess that comes up somewhere, uh, there's a good chance I'll have, I'll get to it, even if it, uh, especially if it doesn't have any moves. And of course, Frank Brady's book was terribly impressive
0: to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. Endgame or Profile of a Prodigy. Or-
2: well, I didn't like *Profound Prodigy* so much as I liked the uh,
0: second one of them. *Endgame*, yeah, fantastic uh, book. Um, that one, but... And his descriptions of Fisher—I mean, I know you're quoted in the book here and there—but his his descriptions of the of Fisher rang true to you.
2: Yes, there. Although there's one thing I hold against Frank, and that is I felt that the last part of the book—he he was kind of this punches a little on how weird Bobby had become at the very end and what his uh broadcasts were the Spanish broadcasts yeah they were I think that Frank really kind of was very mild uh on that yeah. and uh
0: yeah, it's a fair criticism. It's tough when these guys are, are your heroes, you know? you know? Yeah, it's tough, yeah. You worship one thing they do, and then they're just reprehensible in other ways. It's a tr- um, fine line to walk. Um,
2: many people don't. I know the, the question of what to say about in the in the chess museum about Bobby has bothered many people here and there. Uh, I I think what they decided to do is right but some people wish to have much more of the negatives of bobby included uh i don't think so but anyway that's a difficult difficult problem for everybody to solve
0: yeah yeah it is but i i think you've for better or for worse it doesn't doesn't do any good to hide it um unfortunately um and Truly the last question, Stuart, since now that I know that you've read very few chess books, how how did you become a master at a time when there were not that many chess masters?
2: Um, There were not that many chess masters. The list was really quite modest. uh, uh, Playing in Flea House, uh, that's how I got to be a better player. Flea House, one time... Not, for, not one time, but many times I would get to the flea house at 4 in the morning because I had a job that finished at 3.30 in the morning, and sometimes I wouldn't want to go to bed. And I could go to the flea house at 4 in the morning and still find chess players, it was really and scrabble players, too, especially scrabble players. I don't know why. But uh, I learned to play in the flea house, mostly. And, of course, in Jack Collins' house, too. Jack Collins was very receptive.
0: Yeah, and but and of course he had a legendary chess library, but you were mainly playing there?
2: I never played, read one of Jack's books. I didn't <laughs> even know he had a legendary library, <laughs> okay. yeah.
0: Um and were you yeah, going over? I never over hardly the,
2: ever read a chess book.
0: Were you going over the game, Stuart, after you played or No, 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 no. Just, I never was wow, like Never never got to be good and
2: never got to have a positional sense, never was a strategist. Uh if it if it wasn't mating by sacking the Queen it's about the best I could
0: do. Okay. Well, it, it worked. And um, and Stuart, this has been fantastic. Thank, thank you so much for sharing all of these awesome stories. It's, it's a
2: real joy to talk to you.
0: Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter at Perpetual Chess on Instagram and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me ben at perpetualchesspod.com and of course last but not least I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show going over chess games answering questions stuff like that and you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference so but most of all thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you all on the next episode